Hey everyone, this is M Black Writes, a podcast for people who love stories, and I'm your host, M Black. Welcome to the Choose Your Own Adventure mini episode. If you can't tell, I am incredibly excited about this, and I got super, super, super into it. If you follow me on Instagram, Thank you for helping me create this story. Thank you for answering all the polls and questions that decided the way in which this story would go, which is opposite of how I would have written it. Every time I asked a question, you guys would pick the option that would not have been what I picked. So it's kind of cool because you really, really challenged me and stretched my abilities and it took me a long time to work on this and it took a lot of effort, but I was super into it. And not only just with the writing, but I put some cool music in and I did a lot of sound effects. I have this weird, I wouldn't call it a dream because it's not something that I ever actually would pursue. But but do you guys ever have like a job that you think, man, that would be a really cool job. And maybe in some alternate reality, that could be my job. Well, one of those jobs for me is a Foley artist. And if you don't know what that is, number one, you should look it up and watch a YouTube video about Foley artists. Number two, I'll give you like a quick definition of what it is. So a Foley artist or Foley artists are people who make the sounds for TV and movies. So like on a movie, if something was going to squish, they would use like random objects to make that squishing sound. And it's not always what you think it would be. And I find it so interesting. And I got to harness my inner Foley artist for this episode because I did a lot of weird stuff to make some sound effects for this episode. And I think it turned out pretty good, but... I'm glad nobody had to watch me while I was recording it. If you don't know what a choose your own adventure book is, I feel like you really missed out on a fun childhood experience, but I will give you a quick explanation of what a choose your own adventure book is. So in a choose your own adventure book, you'll be reading the story, but the pages of the story don't just go in chronological order. Like you'll be reading and then you'll get to a point where some type of decision has to be made. And it will say something like, if you want Billy to open the door, turn to page 45. If you want Billy to turn around and go home, turn to page 37. And then you just go to whichever page corresponds with the choice that you want to make. And then the story will move on from there. So realistically, you could read that Choose Your Own Adventure book multiple times over. And if you kept choosing different decisions along the way, it would be a different story every single time. When I first thought of this idea to do on the podcast, I thought it would be really cool to do it more like the traditional choose your own adventure book where you're listening and it would be like, if you want to do this, skip forward to minute 237. If you want to do this, skip forward to minute 345. But then I realized that would be so difficult for me to record, first of all, and not easy to listen to because I know a lot of you listen while you're 
commuting or traveling or cleaning. That's how I listen to podcasts and audiobooks and all that. And it would be really annoying to have to be skipping around and it it just would have it would have been a mess. So even though you guys technically are the ones who voted on it this way, I also voted on it this way. So I'm glad that you you chose it because it worked out a lot better. And the story is I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I've never written anything like this before ever ever. Never done a mystery or anything like that. And for this being my first time, I was really nervous about it. Thought it was going to turn out like crap, but I think it turned out pretty dang good. I think. You guys will have to let me know how it turned out. So if you follow me on Instagram, you should already know if you have been watching my stories, you should already know that I am turning this into a part one and part two because it's supposed to be a mini episode. That's what you guys earned was a mini episode. And I started writing and I started recording and I was just going, 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 going. And then all of a sudden I had 40 minutes. I hadn't recorded this intro. I hadn't done the big ending and it was already 40 minutes long and I want it to be a mini episode. So I'm splitting it into a part one and part two. So this is part one of two and I am leaving you with a cliffhanger at the end because I want you to want to listen to the second part because what else do I have to hold over your heads? (laughs) I don't like make a product. I only am here for entertainment purposes. That's the only thing I can use to entice you to come back. So I am leaving you with a cliffhanger, okay? I just am. And I may or may not make you earn the second half. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I might. You guys are really good. Every every challenge that I've given you so far, you guys do it pretty quickly. So I have full faith in you that you're going to get to hear the end of this story. We're going to get into it in just a minute. But based off of the choices that you guys made to the questions that I gave you, you guys are a spooky little bunch. You chose a magical mystery and I'm all for it. I feel like this episode should be coming out in October, but I'm a huge fan of Halloween and Halloweenish type things and like mystery, thriller, true crime, magical stuff. I love all of that. So it's kind of nice here in springtime to be getting a little dose of that. And when October rolls around again, just come back to this episode and listen to it as a little refresher. Okay, I'm going to stop blabbing now because I know you're all here for the story. Let's do it. The Vanishing of Jen Sibley, Part 1. A choose-your-own-adventure story written by M. Black. Plot event choices made by listeners of M. Black Wright's podcast. You know, you've been coming to see me for quite some time. 
Yet I don't believe you are truly opening up to me. You are holding back. You think of the threatening notes you've been receiving. How badly you want to speak this all out loud to someone. Anyone. She's right. Of course she's right. What you tell her in your weekly sessions is just the tip of the iceberg. You can't tell her everything, though. Or can you? It's been years since you've used a memory erasing spell. You're sure you are rusty, but you know you have the ability to conjure strong, mind-altering enchantments. You could say it is your niche. You've been coming to see Dr. Delarol for the past ten months. It turns out magical powers cannot solve all of your problems. Even with your enhancements, you're still human, and you need help figuring out your mess of a brain. Funnily enough, it was Jen who had suggested therapy to you. She's been seeing Delarol for years. You don't know why you took her advice, but you can't deny it has been a release for you, even if you are altering all the information you give. Jen's life is in shambles. If she has any semblance of a support system, you and the doc are it. Separated from her husband and shunned in the community, she leans on you heavily. You can't deny that you enjoy it, though. You are proud of becoming that person in Jen's life. That's probably why you need the therapy. Jen doesn't know about you and your special skills. Neither does Doc Delaro. In fact, nobody knows. Well, except for whoever it is writing the notes. But nobody you have willfully told knows. It's an itch that needs scratching. You got me, Doc. You reply coolly. I haven't been giving you the whole truth. Would you like to now? Dr. Delaro gently presses. You lean back into the crisp, white linen sofa. I suppose. With the slightest, almost inconceivable twitch of your index finger, you seal the room with a sound barrier. You tell her everything. You don't even give her time to respond before you've swiped her memory and confidently strode from the room, feeling refreshed. Jen Sibley's missing persons case was dismissed quickly by the local police department. Jen's reputation among the townsfolk was murky at best, and her isolation didn't do her any favors. Cops shrugged off the notion by using her recent separation and lack of connections in the community as a logical reason for her to flee. No evidence of foul play or forcible removal was found at her residence, and that was the nail in the coffin. Before becoming a social pariah, Jen had been well-liked and respected in the community. Jen and her husband, Rob, had never been able to conceive a child on their own. Jen, who loved children, volunteered to run story hour at the library and coached a team for just about every city league sport. She had good rapport with the kids and the parents. Rob and Jen had been on a long and arduous adoption journey. Each time they began to view themselves as the actual parents of the child in their care, a family member would come out of the woodwork to claim them, severing the bonds they had created. Another chink in the couple's emotional armor was the only thing left behind when the dust settled. For Jen, things took a turn for the worse when the community began to turn on her. I'm sorry, Jen. I know it's a volunteer position, but we're going to have to let you go, the librarian had stated. Many of the parents are concerned with your reasoning for wanting to be near the children so badly. 
what with all of those kids being taken away from you? We all know how badly you want a child. They are worried you might be getting desperate. What are you suggesting? Jen had fired defensively. I'm not suggesting anything. All I'm saying is you're making the mothers uneasy and we'll have to find someone to fill your shoes. I'm sorry. Jen cried. Then it was the head of the PTA. But I've helped with this fundraiser every year for five years running, and it's never been a problem before, Jen declared. Sorry, Jen. New policy. If you don't have a child attending the school, you can't participate. Jen cried. Next, it was the manager of the city recreation center. <clears throat> Look, I'm just going to rip it off like a band-aid. None of the girls' parents want their daughter on your volleyball team. I couldn't find enough who would agree to even form a team for you to coach. Jen sobbed uncontrollably. After enduring all of this, she had retreated more and more inward. She cut her hours at work, no longer socialized, and rarely left the house. When a social worker stopped by for an impromptu visit, she took in the full view of Jen's mental state as well as the state of her home and quietly expressed to Rob that for the time being, the couple would be removed from the prospective adoptive parents list. Jen was in pieces. Even with the strain of all of this, Jen and Rob's marriage had survived. That was, until little Freddie Coulson. The Coulson family had been enjoying a family picnic at one of the local parks. Freddie, their youngest, just a toddler, had been searching for only the best rocks, twigs, and leaves in the park and stuffing them into the various pockets of his cargo shorts. When Mrs. Colson called for all four of her children to meet under the pavilion to eat lunch, she discovered that Freddie was missing. After the entire Colson family scoured the park, Freddie still could not be found. Quickly, a search party was formed and a phone call chain was established to spread the word. Eventually, Freddie was found in a house on the opposite side of town, the home of none other than one Miss Jen Sibley. No criminal charges were ever placed on her, and she always stood by her story that she spotted the young boy strolling up the sidewalk in front of her home alone and became concerned for him. Freddie, whom she recognized from story hour, had happily entered her house when she had assured him that she would call his parents to let them know where he was and they would most likely come and pick him up. She was about to do just that, holding the phone in her hand when the cops arrived. Mrs. Kratz, the Sibley's neighbor, had called it in when she saw what she described as that baby snatching, sniveling Sibley luring Freddie Coulson into her cave. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Rob moved out of the house that night. Jen didn't have any family in the area. This was Rob's hometown. She had relied heavily on the friends and acquaintances she made through all of her volunteer work. With that taken from her, she had no one. It was at this point that you stepped in. Although you did run in some of the same circles, the two of you hadn't interacted much except for short greetings in passing, but... When Jen's entire existence began being sucked into a black hole, you seized the opportunity to befriend her. She, in her ultimate vulnerability, emphatically attached herself to you. 
Clearly, the police department's decision to call off the search for Jen Sibley was reasonable and logical. Reasons for her to remain in place were few and far between. It would have been all too easy for her to flee back to her roots in Massachusetts. You, however, didn't buy it. You were her lifeline. Other than Doc Delarue, there was probably not a single person on the planet who knew and understood the inner workings of Jen's mind in the way that you did. Not only that, but you had the power to sense the mood of a person. You couldn't read exact thoughts, but you could infer quite a bit through feeling what others felt. If there were signs of a possible retreat, you would have seen them. Something was off. The vanishing of sniveling Sively did not occur by runaway. Coinciding with the stress of Jen's disappearance is the constant looming sensation of the notes that have been so carefully bestowed upon you. You didn't confide in Jen in the way that she did you, but if things were different and you were able to have that type of relationship with her, you imagine the notes would have been something you would have shared. You have a secret I know you want to tell. Come clean, it will feel better. I know who you are and what you are doing. Three notes, menacing yet gentle, boldly written in actual hand script, not typed. You felt sure that you had seen the handwriting before, but you couldn't pinpoint it. It wasn't Jen's. Hers was much more modern, curly, and whimsical. The writing of these notes was in precise, old-fashioned cursive, suggesting a much older hand at the pen. You knew, though, that the author of the notes must be someone that you have met before. Someone knew about your magic. Although it is alarming, and a nick at your pride, for you regarded yourself as highly inconspicuous, you knew that if you could simply track down the unknown writer, a clean memory wipe, just as you had performed on Doc Delarue, would remedy the issue quickly. Placing the notes in a neat line on your kitchen counter, you begin a quiet incantation paired with a swirling motion using both hands. From each note is emitted a single strand of golden light, which braid together until they eventually form the image of a large, knotted tree. You'd done this before. You'd studied this tree. You scanned the nearby forests and woods to no avail. Setting your elbow on the counter and your fist under your chin, you stare at the tree, hoping for some enlightenment. However, in terms of the two mysteries now fallen in your lap to solve, the whereabouts of Jen Sibley is the front runner. So, you brush your hand through the golden image and the tree dissipates. You head straight for 234 Sparrow Way, the Sibley residence. Jen and Rob Sibley had shared a quaint home with an aqua blue roof and white shutters. Jen had been the solo resident for the past two months with Rob living at his mother's home across town. When you asked Jen why she would choose to stay, she always stated that the separation was only temporary and if she left, it would feel, and possibly become, permanent. And there was you, of course, her dear friend and confidant. How could she leave you? Approaching the front door, which is adorned with a large and ornately decorated letter S, you are stopped by the shouts of the Sibley's neighbor, Mrs. Kratz. That's a crime scene, you know! Eleanor Kratz is surprisingly spry for her almost 80 years of age. You notice this as she bounds up the sidewalk after you. 
Evidence shouldn't be tampered with by the likes of you, she admonishes, narrowing her eyes. Mrs. Kratz doesn't like you. You can tell not only by her words, but by the feelings of disgust and mistrust she is discharging. Eleanor, so glad to see you are still playing Neighborhood Sentinel. I believe you made it from your window to here in record time. But, alas, seeing that Jen's case has been dropped, this is no longer a crime scene. Don't patronize me, you devil woman! You chuckle. In the palm of your hand, you conjure a false key and raise it to the eye level of Mrs. Kratz. I'm only here because I'm worried about Jen's plants. Being so close to her, she gave me this spare key ages ago, and I often water for her while she's out of town. I figured I should do the same now. Mrs. Kratz grimaces at the key. I don't like you, or that baby-stealing maniac of a neighbor. Good riddance to her and her plants. Eleanor swerved around you and stubbornly placed her short but round body in the way of you continuing up the path. You sighed, knowing that although this was annoying, there were other ways you could enter the home without all of this confrontation. <sighs> Good for you, Eleanor. Way to stick to your guns. Good day to you. Back at your home, you use a flicking motion to open up the antique armoire, which sits ostentatiously in your living room. It is always the center of attention whenever you have guests over. However, opening it reveals empty shelves, which is puzzling to most. You explain it away with a simple, I like antiques, response. Today, though, you are opening the armoire for a purpose. When the double doors swing open, you are expecting the usual barren shelves. However, you are shocked to find an occupant. Another note. This one reads, This cabinet is much like you, not what it seems. Angrily, you shake off the feelings of violation. Whomever is after you is becoming increasingly more audacious, what with their willingness to break into your home. You can't let this blur your focus, though. And with another snap, the inside of the armoire takes new shape revealing steps and a descending stone hallway lined with fiery lanterns. You take the stairs, which lead down into a chamber with high shelves, containing all of the magical artifacts in your possession. A crystal ball swirling with blue, sparkling liquid sits in the center of the room. You don't bother conferring with it. You've already tried and Jen doesn't appear. This could mean many things, all of them concerning. Stopping in front of a shelf in the far south corner, you raise your right arm and swish your hand in one quick circle. This summons an ornate wood box from the top shelf. It floats gently into your waiting palms. You undo the metal clasp on the front of the box and lift the lid slowly revealing a shimmery, almost opaque headpiece. It contains several dangling jewels, with the largest resting on the center of your forehead when you put it on. Wearing the headpiece, you return to the Sibley residence. You had parked your car a block away to ward off any further suspicion by Mrs. Kratz. When exiting the vehicle, you press down firmly on the center jewel of the headpiece. This engages the cloaking feature 
and you become invisible to all human eyes. As you walked the rest of the way to Jen's house, you had to dodge a few joggers, shoo away a dog which sniffed you, and step out of the way of a stroller. Finally, you had made it to your destination. You let yourself in through the side door attached to the garage, hoping that the door swinging open and closed on its own wasn't picked up by Kratt's internal radar. Once inside, you headed straight for Jen's bedroom. The place is a wreck, and no room is worse than this one, where Jen spent the majority of her time brooding. If there is any evidence of escape or removal, this is where it will be found. The room is mostly full of laundry. Dirty or clean, it's hard to decipher between the piles. The dresser slash TV stand combination is lined with an assortment of wrappers, bowls, plates, utensils, and glasses. You start here. Making an X and then swiping your hands out in opposite directions casts an identification spell. Directly above each piece of dishware or food item, a blueprint-style image of the person whose DNA can be detected there materializes with a popping noise. After what sounds like the finishing seconds of popcorn in a microwave, you stand facing 20 or so sketches of Jen's face. You exhale, blowing air through closed lips, then turn to examine the room more thoroughly. It is difficult to sift through the wreckage of Jen's poor housekeeping. Frustrated, you lift your arms while inhaling and press your two fists together. When you twist your opposing knuckles in opposite directions, as if unlocking something with a key, all of the objects in the room begin to rise from their resting places and organize themselves into neat, categorized piles, with the clothing pile towering over the rest. You ignore the clothing, garbage, and dishes, and move to the paper and office supplies. Here you discover Jen's personal journal. Having no qualms about invading her privacy, you flip to the last page written before her disappearance. The entry is short, just one sentence. I'm going to find the voodoo doll and free myself of it. Taken aback, you highlight the word voodoo doll with your finger and open your palm wide. Without you touching them, the pages of the journal turn until stopping on another page with the word voodoo doll glowing in green. I feel as though my life is no longer my own, like there is someone out there playing the evil puppeteer. Or maybe someone has made a voodoo doll of me. That's it. A voodoo doll being pricked with needles. You admire Jen's intuition, although, to your knowledge, there are no other sorcerers or enchantresses living in this area, and you certainly haven't created a voodoo doll in Jen's likeness. That would be very rudimentary compared to your skill set. With a double brush of your hands together, the room and its contents return to their original positions. Besides the journal, which you have tucked under your arm, nothing else seems noteworthy. As you leave the room, though, a folded piece of paper falls from the journal and onto the floor. You recognize the parchment immediately. Still, you remove the three notes from your pocket and compare them to the one on the floor. It is the same. Size, shape, 
color, texture. You return the originals to your pocket and summon the new note to you with two beckoning fingers. Before landing in your palm, the note unfolds itself to reveal the following message. Will you help me help her? You redo the folds and stow the message in your pocket with the rest, pondering the identity and motives of the anonymous writer. Is this person also searching for Jen? If this is true, the unnamed is clearly one step ahead of you, taunting you with breadcrumbs. Your pride hurts. Where would you search for a voodoo doll, Jen? You ask the air as you pace down the hall and into the kitchen. You're about to move into the living room when you catch something in your peripheral vision. A flash of the familiar, flecked, earthy paper. Another breadcrumb, you observe as you turn to face it. There, tucked underneath a photo magnet bearing Jen and Rob's smiling faces, is a note. This one is unfolded, goading you with its open-faced question. Have you checked the backyard? Your stomach drops as you imagine finding a mound of freshly dug dirt hiding Jen's body beneath it. You shake your head and roll your eyes at yourself. The idea is ridiculous considering the place was swarming with police no less than 48 hours ago. What you do find when you cross the threshold of the sliding door onto the back patio sends a shockwave through your body. Without the trained eye of someone who possesses magical powers, it would be imperceptible, as it was to all of those who investigated the home. To you, though, it is glaring. You are about to cross the lawn and open it when a mop of flyaway hairs and two eyeballs appear at the top of the fence line, which is shared with the Kratz property. Eleanor? You curse her in your thoughts as you hold your breath. You are still being cloaked with invisibility by the jeweled headpiece, but her thorough inspection of the yard is unnerving. After she relents and retreats back into her home, you wait five minutes longer before stepping foot off the deck and onto the lawn. So, I'm not the only sorcerer around here, you think as you stare down at the portal case. It's made of stone, a white marble with veins of gray throughout. It looks like nothing more than a large ornate keepsake box. Placed in Jen's rock garden, it appears to the naked eye to be merely decoration. You know, though, it is a powerful teleportation device. Each portal case is engraved with its destination. You lean over the box to make out what it says, then jump back, astounded. Black Turn Forest. Staggering backwards out of the gate, no longer concerned with the bionic ear of Eleanor Kratz, you return to your vehicle in a matter of minutes at a brisk jogger's pace. That night, you lie in bed, breathing heavily. You would love to sleep, but you are grappling to come to terms with the situation. This is what you know. Jen Sibley, an individual of extreme importance to you, has most likely been led through a portal to Black Turn Forest, a place which you have sworn never to return in order to protect yourself. You are suddenly jolted with a realization. 
In a frenzy of arms and incantations, all six of the mysterious notes now float above you, producing golden strands of light. The image of the tree hangs in the air above your head. How could you be so stupid? How did you not make the connection? Why had you not checked? Sitting up in bed, you crane your neck, getting as close to the glowing tree as you possibly can. Squinting, you can just make it out. There, in the middle of the trunk, a letter S is carved into the bark. Shrieking, you forcefully use two open palms to send the tree flying into the opposite wall, where it breaks into a ball of dust and then nothingness. The notes gently swirl downward until they all rest on your comforter. You lay in the same spot for several moments, staring at the ceiling, trying to slow your breathing. Then, you flip the blankets off of you, not caring about the discarded notes, and head to the armoire, quickly opening the hidden entrance. Once in the chamber, you slam a small cauldron onto a long rectangular wooden table. Closing your eyes, you visualize all of the ingredients you need, and in one fell swoop, you summon them all. The bottles, which come flying from various shelves, crash and cling into each other as they race to be the first to empty their contents into the cauldron. You carry the bubbling concoction back to your bedroom by the handle of the cauldron. Once near your bed, you drink directly from the lip of the old pot, draining it. You release the handle and flop onto your bed at the same time the metal crashes into the floor. You sleep. And that is it, my friends. That is all I'm giving you for now. If you would like to earn the second half of The Vanishing of Jen Sibley and figure out where in the heck Jen is, if she really is a kidnapper type person and who is sending these mysterious notes, then follow me on Instagram. Details will be there of how you can earn the second part of this story. Bye.